This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week's recommendation is your choice. I would like to get some recommendations for Audible books in the future that we should check out. Please post these on the Facebook page or on my Twitter page at Dennis Bird, that's D-E-N-I-S-B-Y-R-D, and mark it with the hashtag The Renaissance Podcast so I can find them. So please choose any title you like when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash The Renaissance for your free download. Welcome to the Renaissance, episode 16, The Mad Monk of Florence. Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird, and I'd like to thank everyone who wrote a review for the podcast last month. Reviews are one of the ways that iTunes uses to rank shows, and writing a review will help the show become more visible. If you haven't already, please consider writing a review for the podcast or giving us a rating on iTunes. Don't forget about our tour of Italy in 2017. Please take a look at the information about the trip on the Tours tab at the renaissancepodcast.com. It should be a great trip, but space is limited, so be sure to sign up early. Finally, I've made some updates to the website. It's now easier to make a one-time donation or a recurring donation by clicking on the support tab. I've also added a new feature, the Renaissance Podcast Store. Just click on the shop tab and you will see a selection of prints of Renaissance art. All sales help support the podcast so we can do more episodes and... I have a lot of big plans for the podcast in the future to make it bigger, better, and more enjoyable for you, the listener. This is only possible with listener support, so please consider donating to the show or purchasing one of these beautiful Renaissance prints. I would like to take a moment to thank those who have donated already. It's much appreciated and will go to help us do more episodes and create better episodes in the future. Now, on to the show. I must admit that it took me longer than normal to write this episode, partly because there's a wealth of information on Savonarola, but also because of my own feelings towards this person. I have conflicting emotions about him, and at times, a genuine dislike for him, and yet, I can't help but admire the guy. It's not often that I have such personal feelings about a historical character, but Savonarola's actions led to the destruction of hundreds of works of art as well as the deaths of many Florentines who disagreed with his strict fundamentalist theology. Now, there's some dispute on this, which we'll cover during the episode, and maybe not as many Florentines were killed as we've been led to believe over the years. 
but not unlike Isis. He was a religious zealot and he called for the destruction of many works of art and giant bonfires of the vanities. Now, it should be noted that he wasn't opposed to all art, particularly religious art, and he felt that art should glorify God. He was only opposed to the secular, humanistic portrayals of Greek gods and nude nymphs and satyrs, and these were the works of arts that were destroyed. But Savonarola was a complicated figure, and it's impossible to deny the impact he had on artists like Botticelli and Michelangelo. He very justly spoke out against the worst abuses of the church, as well as the ruling classes of Florence, and he genuinely sought to help the poor. He strived for a true democratic republic in Florence with the ouster of the Medici family. Many of his reforms were needed and justified, and we'll see later generations take up some of these ideas. But in Savonarola, we see a fanatical strain of Christianity, and he's obsessed with these visions of the apocalypse. This is something we've seen in later cult leaders as well. Jim Jones was a tireless advocate for the poor and civil rights movement before he led his followers to their deaths in a compound in Guyana. But I think it would be unfair to put Savonarola in the same category as somebody like Jim Jones, who led his followers to their deaths. Admittedly, Savonarola surrendered himself unto death rather than see his followers killed. And it's too easy for us to dismiss Savonarola as just a zealous, fanatical cult leader. All who met him felt he possessed a holiness and an incredible intellect. Florence itself possessed this same split personality in the years following Lorenzo's death. The time of Savonarola was the most democratic period in the city's history, and yet it was also the bloodiest and most repressive. Savonarola was able to infect an entire city with his ideas and managed to control the city who feared the end was near as Savonarola prophesied. If you've ever listened to Dan Carlin's podcast, he coined a term, intellectual contagion. This refers to an idea that spreads like a disease, and the outcomes are often uncontrollable. We see this with the French Revolution and the Communist Revolutions in Russia, and how they spiral out of control from their idealistic early beginnings. I'm going to borrow this term because I think it accurately describes the effect that Savonarola's apocalyptic sermons had on the masses of Florence and how he was able to manipulate this mass hysteria to turn the people against the Medicis and the Renaissance ideas that the city had nurtured for almost a hundred years. Though it's just as likely that Savonarola tapped into a discontentment that lied just below the surface of Florence. Either way, Savonarola was pivotal to the end of Medici rule and essentially the end of Florence is the most important city of the Renaissance. Giarlamo Savonarola was not a native of Florence, but born in the city of Ferrara in 1452, a city that the Florentines considered a backwater. Little is known about his early life. His grandfather and father were tied to the Duke's court, but rather than adopting the humanistic views of the nobility of Ferrara, this association seems to have had the opposite effect on the family. Savonarola was steeped in the medieval pietism of his family, who secretly railed against the abuses of the nobles and the church. In Italy at the time, there existed two forms of Christianity. Most people, common people, held to a personal faith and practice that was separate from the church leadership. Leadership was viewed as hopelessly corrupt, 
and had little bearing on day-to-day spirituality of the common people. This was made evident by the assassination attempt on Lorenzo by a priest who was sanctioned by the Pope. Nonetheless, Savonarola took holy orders against his family's wishes, and from his letters, he wished to change the corrupt nature of the Renaissance church and restore her to the poverty and simple faith of the early church. In Savonarola's later sermons, you will hear this sharp criticism of the church. In one of Savonarola's sermons, he says, O consecrated priest, hear my words. O priest, O prelates of the Church of Christ, renounce your benefices that you cannot serve. Renounce your pomp and your convivial gatherings and the banquets which you give so splendidly. Renounce, I say, your concubines and your boys. For it is time, I say, to do penance, because from all of these things come the great tribulations by which God desires to mend his church. In Savonarola's poem, On the Ruin of the World, he states, The scepter has fallen into the hands of a pirate. St. Peter is overthrown. Here, lust and greed is everywhere. It does seem that Savonarola had an obsession with sexual vice in particular, and this has led some to speculate, like Paul Strathern, that Savonarola was dealing with some sort of sexual desire or lust in his own background. And this led him to an ascetic life in order to purify himself from these desires. The wickedness of the world might lead to his own corruption without joining an order such as the Dominicans. This was a way for him to purge his own perceived sins as well as assist others. And he hints at this in a letter to his father not long after joining the Dominicans. And in the first place... This I would earnestly desire of thee, as of a manly character which duly despiseth things that perish, that thou wouldest regard and embrace facts rather than, as poor women are wont to do, mere feeling, and that thou would judge according to reason, whether it were expedient for me to have left this world, and thus hold fast by my purpose. For this, indeed, is the chief reason which led me to the religious life, and to a monastery, namely, the boundless misery of this world, and the extreme unrighteousness of most men, the adulteries, thefts, idolatries, impurities, and hideous blasphemies, unto which this age hath so far reached that there may be found none that doeth good, for which cause was I want oft times a day to repeat with tears. Haste thee, haste to escape from a land that is cruel and greedy." And thus I did, because I was not able to endure the utter inequity of so many of my fellow countrymen, a state of things which was, to my mind, the more serious that I saw every virtue downtrodden and crushed, and crime and vice promoted, and everywhere supreme, for nothing hath ever been more distressing to me than this. Accordingly, daily I did pray, the more fervently, unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and in order that God might take me out of so great filth and uncleanliness, with as much devotion and earnestness of mind as I could, was I wont continually to call upon him in this short prayer, Show thou me, Lord, the way that I should walk in, for I lift up my soul to thee. Now hath God, in his own good time of exceeding love towards me, at length shown unto me a way into which, unworthy though I be, I have entered, and on which I have held. Now, I pray thee, tell me, is it not a fitting and glorious work of virtue 
for a man to avoid defilements of this world, for a man to live the life of reason and not, as do the beast, the life of sense. Moreover, should I not rightly be held the most foolish and most ungrateful of men, thus vehemently to have prayed to God, that he would open unto me right ways and show unto me a path wherein I should walk, if, when he deigned so to do, I were to turn away and wander from that path. O my Jesu, a thousand times rather may I die than ever be guilty of the sight of so deep an ingratitude. Joining the Dominicans, Savonarola was admitted into the convent of St. Dominic in Bologna. In the monastery, he continued his studies, but because of his studies in medical school prior to joining the order, he was excused from the Latin and Greek classes because he already had such a mastery of these languages. He would then be sent to Florence in 1481 to serve as a lector at the convent of San Marco. Likely, this was due to his inability to get along with his superior, Vincenzo Bandelli, who would later head the Dominican order. While at San Marco, Savonarola asked to give the Lenten sermons at San Lorenzo, and by his own admission, he failed terribly. He spoke with a harsh voice and a heavy Ferrarese accent that the Florentines found grating. He gesticulated wildly and gave the impression of an uncouth provincial. By his own admission, most of the congregation left during his sermons until only a handful of old women remained. He nearly gave up preaching after this experience. He would return to Bologna where he taught theology, and he practiced the art of preaching. Soon you would find Savonarola walking over most of Italy, preaching fiery sermons at every small church along the way, and we begin to see a hint of the prophetic visions that he would later become known for. During his wanderings on foot, preaching from town to town, Savonarola earned the reputation of a pious monk. He urged his congregations to return to the simplicity of the early church. He excoriated members of the ruling class and the leaders of the church for their corruption and debauchery. One must remember this is the time of the very worldly popes and cardinals, many of whom fathered illegitimate children. Pope Sixtus was known to be an extremely corrupt individual who introduced the practice of simony. This is the selling of church offices to help pay for the upkeep of the noble classes within the church. We touched on this briefly in the last episode, and the church was rampant with nepotism. Nepo actually means nephew in Latin, and as we discussed with Pope Sixtus, he used the church to further the aims of his own family by appointing his nephews to key positions. Now, it must be noted that illegitimate sons were often referred to as nephews for the sake of propriety. Pope Innocent, though a more amiable pope, was also known for his corruption. He openly flaunted his wife and children in Rome, appointing them to high office within the church. Of course, Lorenzo's daughter was married off to Pope Innocent's son in order to cement an alliance between the two families. This corruption angered many of the common people who still devoutly held on to their Christian faith. When Savonarola began preaching against these abuses, it struck a chord with many of the lower classes, and he built a following that brought him to the attention of Lorenzo. Lorenzo had just purchased the office of cardinal for his 16-year-old son from Pope Innocent. The problem for Lorenzo was that his son Giovanni was not the most pious or moral individual in the Medici family. 
He had become concerned because Giovanni had grown into an indolent young man, and he was worried that he was being corrupted by many of the humanistic thinkers that Lorenzo brought into the court. Therefore, with the advice of his friend Pico della Mirandola, he sought the most holy man in Italy in the hopes of providing a more doctrinally sound Christian education for his son, who would be the cardinal. Pico is an interesting figure himself. He was in hot water with the church because of his heretical ideas that all religions could be linked in a unified system. Despite this, he maintained a close friendship with Savonarola, as well as Lorenzo de' Medici. Both he and Savonarola would discuss deep theological questions long into the night. Pico seems to have wished to return to the good graces of the church, and when Lorenzo was looking for a solid preacher, theologian, he happily suggested Savonarola, with whom he hoped to resume a more active friendship. The monk would assist Pico in writing a new work upholding the orthodoxy of the church. It would speak against the use of astrology, which was so prevalent among both the clergy and the lay people of the period. He hoped to expose astrology as a superstition rather than a verifiable science that was acceptable to God. He did not abandon the philosophies of Aristotle or Plato, however, but rather made arguments as to why astrology was out of place with both humanism and Christian orthodoxy. Despite Savonarola's fundamentalism and his arguments against Greek philosophy, he too held many ideas influenced by Plato and Aristotle, who were the inspiration for many humanist thinkers. Lorenzo requested that the Dominicans send Savonarola to the monastery of San Marco, but the head of the order, Bandelli, refused. If you remember, Bandelli was Savonarola's superior, who he could not seem to get along with. And he saw Savonarola as a dangerous zealot and warned Lorenzo of the peril that Florence might be in under the spell of this man. Lorenzo insisted, however, and Bandelli relented, and in 1489, Savonarola made the trek over the mountains to Florence. For Pico, Savonarola's presence was most welcomed. The two seemed like an odd pair, as Pico Mirandolo was a censored individual on the run, hiding in Florence for his theoretical writings, but it seems that Pico changed his views after Lorenzo had saved him from execution and offered him protection within Florence. Savonarola saw their renewed friendship as an opportunity to bring Pico back into the fold of Orthodox Christianity. Pico, for his part, would provide an important link between Savonarola and Lorenzo de' Medici. It would not take long before Savonarola was preaching against the vice and worldly behavior of the citizens of Florence. Why Lorenzo tolerated this for so long is unknown, but it may be due to a past experience with a similar fiery friar who Lorenzo expelled from the city. There was a backlash by the common people of the city, despite Lorenzo's popularity. His reputation suffered, so he may have felt it was more politically sound to allow Savonarola to stay, especially since he invited him to Florence. Lorenzo, though, did make plans to destroy the friar's reputation in more hidden ways. And while many of the elites of Florence would prefer the sophisticated sermons of the Augustinian Fra Mariano, Savonarola's following continued to grow. They were swayed by the passion of his sermons despite its lack of eloquence. 
Savonarola began informal meetings with the brothers of his order inside the courtyard of San Marco. This soon attracted many of the intellectual elites of Florence who were seeking an answer to the corruption they saw within the world. And slowly Savonarola's power continued to grow. There were hints of Savonarola's prophetic visions earlier in his career, but he never made the claim to be a prophet. This would change in 1491. The following of Savonarola had grown so large that the convent of San Marco could no longer hold the number of people who came to see him preach. It was agreed that Savonarola would give the Lenten sermons at Santa Maria del Fiore, the city's main cathedral. This is where we see his first prophetic prophecies for the city, and he would claim that the sermons were not from him, but inspired by God. It is not I who preach, but God who speaks through me. Savonarola would undertake long periods of fasting and meditation, which would seem to induce visions from God. He prophesied that the church would be scourged and then regenerated or renewed. Many of the common people, as well as a growing number of intellectuals, viewed the hierarchy of the church as corrupt and earnestly hoped for a change and returned to the simple faith of early Christianity as Savonarola preached. The people of Florence must abandon the philosophies of Aristotle, Plato, and the luxuries that are corrupting their souls, according to Savonarola. Without this, they would all be lost and condemned to spend an eternity burning in the fires of hell. Rather than spending their time and money on frivolous distractions, they should give them to the poor. In many ways, Savonarola prefigures the French Revolution and even Karl Marx. Many of his ideas about how society and the economy should be structured would be considered socialistic today. During his Lenten sermons, he also went after the arts. Now, Savonarola was not against art in the churches, but he held a medieval sensibility, and all images exalting pagan myths and gods and not focused on spreading the message of Christ were to be blotted out. His sermons call for a renewal of the church and caused a firestorm in Florence. An aged Michelangelo would recall that he could still hear the voice of Savonarola booming in his head. Yet Lorenzo voiced no objections when Savonarola was put forth as a candidate for a prior of the monastery. This again may reflect Lorenzo's political machinations and his desire to not publicly oppose the popular friar. But there's something else that must be considered. It's undeniable that Lorenzo seemed to have a grudging respect for Savonarola and viewed him as a true holy man. He referred to him as the only pious priest in the city. With Lorenzo's health failing him, could we see him becoming more introspective and religious? Perhaps he too felt the humanism of the Renaissance had devolved into a base hedonism without the moral virtue needed to maintain a society. This is in part why he brought Savonarola in the first place. He worried about the moral character of his own son who grew up in the Medici Palace. However, after Savonarola's sermons, Lorenzo soon dispensed with any ideas of Giovanni studying with Savonarola. He would instead send him to Pisa, where he would not come under the spell of this friar. Lorenzo patiently endured the criticism of Savonarola. Pico de Mirandola and Botticelli would continually reassure Lorenzo that the friar was indeed a good and godly man. Savonarola was made prior of the convent, but in typical Savonarola fashion, 
he refused to pay homage to the Medicis, who considered San Marco their monastery on account of the lavish donations they've given the monastery over several generations. This was considered a great insult, as typically the new prior would go and meet with Lorenzo and bow down before him. Lorenzo would contrive to meet Savonarola in the courtyard, but he would be informed of Lorenzo's presence and avoid the area completely. He would only meet with Lorenzo if he asked for him by name, and he refused to recognize the authority of the Medicis over the monastery, claiming that his authority is derived from God. In Savonarola's Lenten sermons, he would predict the death of Lorenzo de' Medici, King Ferrante of Naples, and Pope Innocent. He was also predicting the ruin of Florence. To the common people listening, this seemed astonishing, and when the predictions came true, they were true believers. However, anyone with knowledge of the court knew that Lorenzo was ill and would not be long before his death despite his relatively young age. Both Pope Innocent and King Ferrante were growing old and so their deaths were imminent. As far as the ruin of the city, many saw this coming. Despite Lorenzo's continued popularity, many saw the economic boom that had enriched Florence was coming to an end. England, one of Florence's main customers for woolen products, began spinning their own domestic wool rather than shipping their wool to Florence. The Medici banks were in ruins due to outstanding loans, corruption, and Lorenzo's lack of attention to the business. Nonetheless, at the time, this was still beyond the horizon, and Florence was still the center of the world. Despite the tension between Savonarola and Lorenzo, he was summoned to Lorenzo's deathbed, along with the Augustinian friar, Fra Mariano. It is reported that Savonarola agreed to give Lorenzo last rites, and asked him if he would repent of his sins, to which Lorenzo agreed. He must give up his ill-gotten wealth. This, too, Lorenzo agreed to. But the final request was that Lorenzo restore liberty to the people of Florence. Lorenzo, it said, confessed that he could not do this, for it would mean the ruin of his own family. Most likely this is an apocryphal tale, as it seems that Lorenzo did in fact receive last rites from the friar, but it paints a picture of Savonarola as the liberator, the restorer of Florence's God-given rites. Upon the death of Lorenzo, Savonarola's prophecies of a coming scourge intensified. But strangely, he did not attack the Medici family, or Lorenzo's son Piero. Paul Strathern, in his book Death in Florence, speculates that Savonarola may have made a deal with Lorenzo, and this is based on several contemporary sources. Essentially, the deal is that the Medicis would protect Savonarola, and he would be given greater power within the city as long as he supported Piero's bid to rule after Lorenzo's death. It's possible this was the real reason he was summoned to Lorenzo's deathbed, and despite Savonarola's idealism, he was a political pragmatist, and in order to reform the city, he needed real power, not just the power he wielded from the pulpit, even though it was tremendous. Unfortunately for Florence, Piero is not the man his father was, and today we know him as Piero the Unfortunate. Despite the discontent with Piero, Savonarola refrained from criticizing him, and saved his rebukes for the church and other members of the aristocracy. He continued to preach against vice, and most specifically, the worst of all sins, sodomy. 
the ruling classes often engaged in homosexual behavior, and philosophers often extolled the virtues of same-sex platonic love. Savonarola considered this one of the main vices he wished to stamp out of the city. Not only this, but he expanded his wrath to include wives and husbands who, in the hopes of avoiding pregnancy, engaged in intercourse outside of natural copulation. The entire city was guilty of some sort of sexual sin or vice, according to Savonarola, and he railed against these in his sermons. Their guilt was used to bring them into his fold, or as a weapon against his enemies. In 1492, after Lorenzo's death, Savonarola began predicting the destruction of the church, and possibly Florence, so that it could be built anew. In his sermons, he began describing Florence as an ark, a place of refuge, when the wrath of God would wipe the earth clean of the sinful, not unlike Noah or Lot. He describes a vision he has, the cross of God's anger, rising from Rome, its arms reaching across the whole earth, on which storms rage tumultuously, and another cross, a golden cross, reaching up from the sky from Jerusalem, bathed in sunlight. Repent, O Florence, while there's still time. Clothe thyself in the white garments of purification. Wait no longer, for there may be no further time for repentance. He made clear that Florence's only hope for survival was a radical turn from the humanistic ideas and lifestyles that flourished under Lorenzo. In doing so, the city could be a safe place for the faithful to ride out the storm. He goes to the Old Testament once more, referencing the figure of Cyrus, the Persian king who destroyed the Babylonians, and in doing so, freed the Jews from captivity. He even paid to have the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Florence, as Savonarola saw it, was meant to be the new Jerusalem. Who is this Cyrus that he predicted that will come over the mountains? When he first gave his sermon, it seemed that he was pointing to the Turks, who constantly threatened Italy and the rest of Europe. But they never invaded. Rather, an unlikely invader came in the form of Florence's ally, the King of France. Charles VIII was an unlikely conqueror. He suffered from a form of dwarfism and was noted for his ugly features. Likely, this was the result of inbreeding among the French royal family. He did, however, lay claim to the throne of Naples. When King Ferrante died, as Savonarola predicted, Charles made his move on the city in 1494. It would require crossing the territory of his allies Milan and Florence, as well as other Italian duchies. Initially, the Duke of Milan encouraged this move to capture the weakened Naples. Florence, under the leadership of Piero, vacillated. Caught between the powerful forces of the Pope, Venice, and the French army, he hoped to play both sides and wait out the conflict. Unlike the Italian armies, who rarely fought bloody contests, more like chess matches, the French army fought in the bloody northern mode of combat. They did not just fight to obtain the best position on the field and allow their enemies to go home. They fought until their enemies submitted or were dead. This unnerved the Italians. Even the Duke of Milan questioned his decision to invite King Charles into Italy. Charles took Piero's noncommittal posture as an act of war against him, and he moved against Florence. Piero made preparations for war and seems uncharacteristically energetic. His cousins, rivals for the Medici claim of Florence, made contact with the King of France, informing him 
that they and the rest of the city would support the king's invasion of Florence to overthrow Piero. Lorenzo Piero Francesco de' Medici's letter to the king was intercepted, however, and he and his brother were placed under house arrest on the suspicion of treason. The new pope, Rodrigo Borgia, known as Pope Alexander VI, made no move to help Florence. Piero soon found himself alone fighting the French, as neither the Pope, Venice, or Naples were in a position to help. We'll continue this next time, as Piero finds himself outmatched, and Savonarola becomes the sole power in Florence and leads the city-state to its most democratic phase in its history. Don't forget to visit the website for slideshows of past episodes, and remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.